All right, well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. It was on this Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and the crowds were cheering for him. We're talking about Passion Week. Last week, today, next week, we're looking at the one week that changed everything for everyone. You know, years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend. I was kind of new to my faith, and I was struggling with all these questions about creation and the end days, and I have so many different Christian friends arguing about the different theories they had. And he explained it to me in a way that I think really, really helped me. He said that if you look at the beginning, there's not a lot of details about how or when, but we know that who created everything, and that's God. And we don't know a lot of the details about how or when, but we do know that at the end, God will make all things right. And so it's very vague at the beginning and quite vague at the end, but everything in the scriptures points towards one week in the life of Jesus. And there's an almost hour by hour account by four eyewitnesses in this week called Passion. And everything comes from that week. And he actually drew a little picture for me. It looks something like this. Actually, it wasn't nearly that good. It was, it was more like arrows that were pointing towards the cross and arrows coming out of it. Isn't our graphics team amazing? Doesn't that look so much better? Good job, Jeff. Well done, well done. But you see, if any of you have questions about faith, about God, about meaning in life, about creation, about the end of days, What you need to really do is start with that one week in the life of Jesus because everything points towards it and everything comes out of it. And then when you determine your faith, everything will begin to make more sense. See, passion is described in Webster's Dictionary as the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and his death. See, we use the word passion to describe, you know, our passion for soccer. Like, that's what John Burke described last week. And some of you are thinking, you know, I'm passionate about sports where you don't end in a tie, right? And others of you are more passionate about a hobby or passionate about fish and chips or whatever it may be. That's, that's kind of how we use the word passion. But actually, according to Webster's definition, passion is what you're willing to give your life for. See, genuine passion is demonstrated in the fact that God came to rescue us and he willingly gave his life for you and me. And so we're looking at this one week in the life of Jesus more closely than maybe you've ever looked at it before. Because it's a really remarkable week because it starts with Palm Sunday and the people are cheering for Jesus, but by Friday they're screaming that they might see him crucified. And some of them were the same exact people. And so I realize we're coming in this room maybe from different places in our spiritual journey or maybe we're watching online and we're in a different place in our journey. But whatever you think you know about Jesus, there's way more to know. And by knowing, I don't just mean like facts and Bible trivia. I mean experiencing more about Jesus. God wants to invite every single one of us to listen into this message and discover and experience more of who he really is and who he wants us to be. Now, I've come to discover that Jesus was not only God, 
in flesh and blood, he was fully human, and not just human, but the best example of what it means to be human. You see, Jesus was both humble and confident. Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures, yet he confused the religious leaders. He was the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people, yet he came to rescue all of humanity. He lived according to the commands of God, yet the way he lived, taught, loved, and gave his life was so subversive and countercultural. He stood for justice and the spiritually mistreated and deceived, yet he was incredibly loving to the sinner and the outcast. He was on a mission and he lived out that mission consistent with his character. See, the danger is we come into this week and we think we know a lot about the passion and Holy Week and Easter, but we might miss the beauty in the midst of the familiarity. And so with an open heart and open mind, let's dive in a little bit more and look at this week between Monday to Friday, and we'll notice some details that I think will give us more of who God is and who he wants us to be. And so on Monday, there's this really remarkable story where Jesus clears the temple. He actually walked into the temple courts, and there were corrupt money changers. They were ripping people off, people that were coming to the temple to connect with God. Now, some of us have been turned away from faith because of corruption we've seen in churches, either personally or what we've heard about on the news. And let me encourage you, if you've had bad experiences with corrupt church people, don't allow the evil choices of others to keep you from the greatest good you could ever experience. See, Jesus, who was known for his love and his kindness towards outsiders, towards women, towards lepers, towards those who were ill, towards those considered sinners, actually walks into the temple courts and he throws the tables with all the money flying everywhere. Now, it's important to understand, this is, seems like it's out of character for Jesus, but remember, he acts with righteous anger. He was bringing justice and he did not sin. He wasn't triggered. This was not Jesus needing recovery. He actually walked in intentionally to disrupt the corruption that was happening. It was a fulfillment of the scriptures of what was said would be true of the Messiah. It demonstrated his passion for people connecting with God. See, Jesus forcibly removed all the man-made barriers between people and God. Hey, here's what's interesting. We know that he was not in some sort of scary rage because the people actually still came to him. They didn't feel threatened by him. They didn't feel like he'd gone rogue. Here's how they responded. Matthew 21 says, the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of God, they were indignant. See, the outsiders felt loved and came to him. The religious were enraged. See, Jesus cared more for people than he cared what people thought about him. See, Jesus stands up on behalf of those who need an advocate. And God advocates on your behalf and he protects us. Maybe you're very aware of how God has protected you, even recently. See, I think one of the remarkable things about God's protection is we don't even know the dangers that he's kept us from experiencing. 
We don't even know all the ways that God has protected us. But see, on this Monday of Passion Week, we discover that God wants to remove barriers. What are the barriers between you and God? Is it a person who may have hurt you? Is it a particular doubt that seems to plague your heart or a regret that seems to haunt your mind? See, there are barriers that can keep us from having faith. There are barriers that might keep us from growing in our faith. Or there may be barriers that are keeping us from sharing about our faith or maximizing a life of faith. I want to encourage you to ask God to help you see those barriers, that there might be nothing between you and him. Every week we encourage you to do a deeper dive, to take what you've heard on Sundays and really apply it to your life. You do that, just go to gatewaychurch.com slash next steps. You do that every Sunday and maybe it's over lunch or in your life group or with your family or your roommates and you just discuss what you've heard and really allow this to seep into your heart and life. In this time, we've included a special reading plan so that this week, on Passion Week, you can read what was happening in the life of Jesus each day leading up to Easter weekend. It's part of the next steps. Monday's events are recorded in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19 and John chapter 2. Four eyewitnesses pointing out this remarkable day in the life of Jesus. On Tuesday, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his disciples, these followers who were learning from him, they returned to Jerusalem. And Jesus was teaching them along the way about the importance of faith. Back at the temple, the religious leaders are angry at Jesus. They are upset for how he overthrew these money changers standing up as some sort of spiritual authority. And so they organized an ambush with the intent to place him under arrest. Now, Jesus was proclaiming a message to all that, that God can be known no matter what your background, no matter what mistakes you may have made, no matter what illness you might have, that you are important to God. And the religious leaders didn't like this because they had power, they could decide who was welcome in the synagogue, who was welcome in the temple, and who was not. And so what did Jesus do? Some of his best messages were not ever shared at the temple courts or in the synagogue. It was outside, where anyone could show up, where people could come as they were. See, the religious leaders did not like this. And so they plotted against him. See, if you take the time to read what happens on this particular day, you'll see some really beautiful and even familiar moments. Over and over, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, and he points out truth in such remarkable, insightful ways. It's in this section of scripture that he answers the question of, should we pay taxes with this brilliant answer, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? It's in this section where he summarizes the totality of the scriptures with the greatest commandment. He says this in Matthew 21, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus summarizes the scriptures with this connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. They're interconnected. You can't say you love God and not love people. And let's be honest, you can't really love people without God's help, can you? 
See, but Jesus kept evading their traps. And at one point, he pronounces what sounds like really harsh judgment on these religious leaders. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. He looks at the religious leaders and says, blind guides, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Snakes, sons of vipers. Now, you might not know the original language, but it might be obvious this is not a compliment. He, He is literally speaking boldly to the very people in charge that they were like whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside and dead on the inside. And you can't imagine the regular people walking around. I'm sure they were like, oh my gosh, did Jesus just say that? Jesus is hilarious. This is a moment where they were called out for the hypocrisy. Now, Jesus did not mince words. He did not pull punches. And in his righteous anger, there's still love. See, sometimes the most loving thing to do is to speak with brutal honesty to the person who has an incredible blind spot. Here's what's remarkable. I used to think that Jesus was just so nice to the sinner and the tax collector, but he was so mean to the religious leaders. But in reality, this was the most loving thing to do. We see that some of the religious leaders heard this harsh rebuke, and it's actually what turned their hearts towards him. Nicodemus has a long conversation with him in John chapter 3. Or Joseph of Arimathea was also part of the religious leadership. He was the one who offered up his family tomb for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. See, the religious leaders made their jobs, their power, their religious ideas more important than people and even more important than God. Then Jesus does something counterintuitive. He he had just cleared out the temple. He just removed barriers between God and people And then as they're walking along, one of the disciples says, isn't the temple just so beautiful? They're they're probably trying to kiss up to Jesus a little bit. Man, you cleared out that temple and it made it even more beautiful. Isn't it beautiful, Jesus? And then Jesus says these words, Matthew 24. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Another moment, the disciples are like, okay, didn't he just try to make things better? And now he's talking about how it won't last much longer. Within a generation, the very temple was destroyed by the Romans, and it has never been rebuilt. See, if you listen to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is pointing out something significant. See, up until Jesus, people saw temples as the place that you would go in order to meet with God, to have access to God. But Jesus began to teach and demonstrate that he was God, that in order to have access to God, you actually go to him, a person, not to a temple. You don't need a building. To access God, you need Jesus. And when you say yes to Jesus, when you begin following Jesus, when you have a relationship with Jesus, that's when you become part of his family. That's why we gather together. That's why we seek him and ask him for help, out of gratitude, we want to become more like him, more pure, more holy, more courageous. See, one of the things we learn on Tuesday is that God wants relationship, not religion. 
See, some of us grew up with traditions or rituals or even superstitions designed to keep us in good with God or with the universe or with our parents. But ultimately, God does not want more religious people. What God wants is you. He wants a relationship with you. See, a religious mindset treats God more transactionally. It's more impersonal. We falsely believe that if I do these certain things, then God has to do these things for me. My wife, Deborah, and I had a chance to go visit our daughter who's living in Paris right now as a gap year missionary. And then we took her to Rome. It was such a, an amazing experience. We had a chance to meet our global partners there in Paris, the Kumarianos family, just an amazing family. In fact, tonight they have a big event, their big spring outreach event, a huge choir made up of people from Paris, many of whom do not know Jesus. And they'll be singing tonight with special guest Hezekiah Walker. It's a big deal, so pray for them tonight. But it was so fun to see our daughter in action, caring for the kids. She was driving a stick shift. I never taught her how to do that. And she was even speaking French fluently. Everywhere we went, she was our little interpreter. It was amazing. And then when we went to Italy, my wife is proficient in Spanish, so she could speak, and they would understand her. Feeling a little left out, I decided to demonstrate my second language. I speak Latin. It's pig Latin, so it's not as commonly used. But even still, but really it was a beautiful time. We got to show our daughter, whose name is Trevi, the Trevi Fountain. In 1997, we saw this fountain, this beautiful place where these thirsty Roman soldiers were introduced by this young woman to the Trevi, the three roads that came to this place where there was water they could drink. And we wanted her to grow up to become someone who could help others find the living water. And from about age 11 to 17, she wasn't even drinking the water. <laughs> and so to be there and to see her in such a different place with God, not only speaking French, but sharing her story to people in Paris that don't know Jesus and singing about him, it's just so amazing. But the weather was beautiful, which is uncommon there. She kept telling us, I promise Europe is cold. It was like 65 degrees every day. The birds were tweeting, the flowers were blooming, and we were just having such a great time. And on the one day it rained, we had the whole day planned to be inside. We went to St. Peter's Basilica, the world's largest church. And when we got there, there was this huge line. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be rough. Then I found out it was the line to visit the Pope. I didn't really have anything to say to the Pope, so I went over to the short line where there was nobody and here's what St. Peter's Basilica looks like from above. Look at this. Isn't that amazing? You can see it's like a cross if you go from right to left. It looks like a cross from way up above. Or some say, if you include the courtyard there, it looks like a key. Now, I did not take this photo. Uh, it would be amazing if I had the chance to do that. But I did take this video. And you'll notice there's hardly anyone in this building. The biggest church in the world and hardly anyone is in there and it's so ornate and so beautiful and I had the same feeling this time as I did the last time I was there in 1997 if we were to be able to create a church big enough to demonstrate how good Jesus is it might be something like this but that's not actually what Jesus wants from us Remember what he said to the disciples when they saw that beautiful temple? He said, this isn't really what it's about. It's about 
connecting with me. See, here's what's interesting. Jesus said, I am the temple. I am the one who brings access to God, to humanity. But here's what's even crazier. When you and I said yes to following Jesus, now our bodies become a temple. Now we walk around carrying the presence of God everywhere with us. And we have access to God directly. We don't have to get in the longest line in order to talk to someone to get to God. He's right there with us. All we have to do is reach out. The majesty of that place, even being the final resting place of the apostle Peter, it was evident even in the rain. But even then, it's still not enough to demonstrate the greatness of God. So back to our story, Jesus walks past the temple and he leaves the city, went with the disciples to the Mount of Olives. He's due east of the temple on this little mountain. I've had a chance to be there and it's beautiful. You can just see the temple mount right there from the Mount of Olives. And I could just imagine them. They were looking at this glorious temple from this mountain. And the disciples finally mustered up the courage to say, you know, Jesus, you just cleared out the temple. And you remember how one of us just said, the temple sure is beautiful. And then you just kind of said, yeah, well, it's not going to be here much longer. What was that all about? And so Jesus begins to walk them through a prophecy of destruction of Jerusalem and at the end of the age. And it can be really confusing because sometimes he's talking about what would actually happen in the next 40 years and sometimes he's talking about what hasn't even happened yet. He's talking about when he comes back and makes everything right. Now in a world where people are wondering, is this the end of the world? It's important when we go to passages like Matthew 24 to pull out a few things that can help us navigate this. Let me give you one verse in particular. It says this, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See, the end's not going to happen until every nation has had a chance to hear of God's wonderful love for them through Jesus. And that's happening. More and more people are getting the message of Jesus in their language. But here's what I want you to see is that God's heart from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end of time is his love for all people, all nations. And if we follow Jesus, it's important that we become part of those who help others find what we found in a relationship with him. That's why this week is such a beautiful week to invite a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member to come and join us for Easter Sunday. You know this. Easter is, for whatever reason, the day that some of our friends and family, coworkers, neighbors might actually say yes. And this Sunday is going to be powerful. It's going to be beautiful. You want to come early, but you also want to bring people you care for. So even now, just pray. Just ask God, God, who do you want me to invite this week to join us this weekend? Back to the story of Jesus and his thoughts on end times. There's another important verse that's really important. Verse 36 says this, but about that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. What that means to me is if anyone tells you they know when the end of time is, they're wrong. They don't know. No one knows. Not even Jesus knows. Now, that may make you feel even more anxious because it could be today. 
It could be 5,000 years from now. We don't know. Here's what's helped me. As someone who struggled with anxiety, someone who comes from a family filled with anxious people, what helps me is to think through, okay, what is the actual worst thing that could happen? And that actually can help get me into a good place. See, every generation thinks we're the last generation. And here's what's interesting. So far, no generation has been right. Every generation thinks they're the last generation, and you know what? With every generation comes, they're more right than the last, as time just keeps moving on. See, one day, Jesus will make all things right, and that's a a really good thing. But what's the worst thing that could happen? I don't know about you, but to me, it's death. Death is scary. It's terrifying. And so, as someone, as a follower of Jesus, what helps me is, is remembering some of the words of Paul who wrote this while he was in jail in Rome to the believers in Philippi. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if you have a relationship with God, if the worst thing that can happen to you is dying, leaving this life, that's actually a good thing. See, evil people might be able to take your life, but they can't take you away from the one who created you the one who loves you. See, when you and I die, we get to be in the presence of Jesus. We get to be with those who went before us. Now, there's another moment where Paul is in another jail, and he's writing in another letter to his protege, Timothy. It's his second letter when he wrote near the end of his life these words. 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. If he'd only just stop there, this would be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. But he doesn't stop there. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. I don't know about you, but I think Paul has a different definition of safe than I do. Death is not what I'm looking for. If it said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and safely deliver me back to my couch. Safely deliver me back to my house. That would be perfect. That would be what I'm looking for. Why does it have to be God's heavenly kingdom? See, here's the thing that we need to understand. We can trust God with our lives. We can entrust God to God those we love. We can entrust to God others who are suffering. Death reminds us that we live in a broken and evil world, but it's not the end of the story. Because he can be trusted and because this life is not all there is. So the last event that happened on Tuesday during the week that changed everything was Judas Iscariot. After all this talk of faith and the end of days negotiated with the Sanhedrin, the rabbinical court of ancient Israel, how to betray Jesus. Now on Wednesday, Jesus rested in Bethany. We don't know much about what happened that day, which is a great lesson for us to learn. If even the Son of God, the most perfect human, needed to rest, then so do we. From time to time, we need to rest. But then comes Thursday. Knowing his time with his followers was limited, Jesus brought them together to celebrate the Passover. It was the last meal that they would share together. 
And Passover was an important, and still is an important Jewish holiday, marking the moment that God rescued from slavery the people of Israel. And so for this one last holiday meal, let me just ask you, have you ever worked really hard on a holiday meal only for it to be ruined by the people who came? I mean, you thought your Christmas was bad with your extended family. Just listen to what happens to Jesus. Now, it started off good. They actually miraculously got this great place to share this meal together. But then they get there, and they had forgotten to hire someone to wash their feet, which was the custom. So Jesus decided to do it, demonstrating his love and power. He washed their feet. And then over the course of the meal, he began to share with them how he would be leaving. And in his place would come the Holy Spirit. And he shared with them about the importance of sacrifice. But the night ended up ending in betrayal. And that's what I want to focus on a little bit. There's a lot that happens that night. In fact, that's the night he introduces the Lord's Supper or communion. But I want us to notice how Jesus responded to betrayal, to disappointment, to abandonment, and to suffering. See, Jesus knew he was throwing a party for people who would betray him, who would deny him, who would fall asleep while praying with him, and who would abandon him. Yet he still shared this meal. Jesus knew he would be crucified, and yet he still prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And after that moment, Jesus returns to his followers, and the passage says this in Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. I wish we had a lot of time to, sp to spend on Judas. A few years ago, I shared a message on Judas, and we've included that in the next steps, a link to it, so you can dive a little bit deeper. You may not know a lot about Judas, but you might realize not a lot of children are named after Judas. His name has become synonymous with betrayal and to do so with a kiss. How brutal is that? See, I, I want to just give him a, a little bit of a moment here, just maybe a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he heard all this talk of the temple being destroyed and maybe it triggered him. Maybe he thought, you know what? No, no, Jesus, you're supposed to be our political Messiah. You're supposed to overthrow the Romans. Maybe he thought that by betraying Jesus, Jesus would rise up and take revenge and legions of angels would come. It would fast forward to the future he wanted. We don't fully know. But here's what happened. Jesus does not call up a tornado or bring down lightning or take revenge. Instead, Jesus replied in verse 50, do what you came for, friend. He still calls Judas a friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 
But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See, this reminds us Jesus was willingly going to his death. He could have ended it in an instant with legions of angels coming to his rescue. But I just want to notice for just a moment, do you know why the servant of the high priest lost his ear? I think we discover in one of the accounts that it's Peter that's wielding the sword. I think Peter was not trying to cut off his ear. I think he was trying to cut off his head. I think Peter takes a swing, the servant bends down and it takes off his ear. And Jesus, in that moment, heals him. But how cool would it have been if he had taken off his head? (laughs) What a cooler story if Jesus picked up his head and put it back on. Said, don't pick up your sword, Peter. You're a fisherman, not a swordsman, right? Back to the passage, Matthew 26. He's arrested after being betrayed. It says, all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. Mark adds his own experience in the moment when he writes, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In Jesus' greatest moment of need, after being betrayed and arrested, now the people who had seen him do the greatest miraculous things, who saw him teach, who saw his kindness, ran away. Even if it meant being naked in the street. See, our culture is so different from Jesus. Our culture teaches that suffering is never from God. And that revenge should be our response to betrayal and disappointment. We want revenge when we're wronged. And yet Jesus wants to put the ear back on, even of his enemy. See, we try to avoid suffering at all costs. We think of suffering as almost like proof that, that God must not be in this. We falsely believe that God's goal is to keep us from hard things. But see, Jesus could not have accomplished his mission unless he was willing to suffer. He'd been saying it for so long, but it was almost as if they didn't want to hear it because they certainly didn't notice. See, too often we try to protect ourselves and those we love from difficult things. But let me just ask you this question. What if the hard things you're going through now is to prepare you for the great things that God has for you in the future? See, some of the experts teach on the dangers of overprotecting our kids from all harm. Suffering can be the gauntlet towards greatness. Suffering could even be required for us to develop the characteristics we need to accomplish what God is calling us towards. We need to realize the following are lies from our culture. The lie that suffering is never from God. The lie that revenge is our response to betrayal and disappointment. We have to ask ourselves deep down, are we willing to trust God through the suffering? Are we only gonna trust him until we suffer? See, on Thursday, one of the things we discover is that God wants to be with us in our suffering. How have you been betrayed? How did you respond? How should you have responded? See, when we suffer, God wants us to lean into our faith, lean into our church family. And if you're suffering right now, It's important to ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? What are you trying to prepare me for? 
It's important for us to entrust to God those who hurt us, not to take revenge, but entrust that person to him when we're disappointed. Oh, still, we need to be honest. Maybe the challenge is we need to be willing to speak up for ourselves when we're being mistreated. Maybe that's the suffering that he's inviting us towards. See, Jesus warned Judas and Peter. He rebuked Peter for his violence. He spoke the truth to those in power, even as he allowed himself to suffer, knowing that what was God's will for his life would bring peace and forgiveness for us all. See, Jesus willingly was betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, suffered in unfair trials, was beaten, stripped, forced to carry his own cross, and beaten so severely, someone else had to help him carry it. And even still, on that cross, on that Good Friday, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, I don't think he was just praying that for the people who were crucifying him. And I don't just think he was praying that for the disciples who had abandoned him. I think he was praying that for you and me. See, he knows that we were born into a broken world, a sinful world, an evil world, and we make terrible choices that can destroy us and destroy others. The good we want to do, we can't seem to do. The things we don't want to do, we keep seeming to do. And yet he keeps offering us grace. He offers us forgiveness. Here in a moment, we're going to actually take the Lord's Supper together. An act Jesus initiated on that Thursday during Passion Week. And when we take the bread and we drink the cup, we're acknowledging that what we need is God's forgiveness as we are able to have it because of his death on the cross. But before we take the Lord's Supper, the scriptures tell us to examine our hearts. And so on, I want to invite you during this moment just to ask God, God, what are my blind spots? What do I need to confess? What are the barriers that I put up between you and me? What's keeping me from fully trusting you, from fully sharing about you? Ask God to speak to you. Examine your heart as we listen to this song.